871, Alfred, a young prince from Wessex, gathered his men on the field of battle at Ashdown, a hill with a mysteriously emblazoned white horse cut into the hillside. The enemy before him was mighty and ferocious, a band of trained professional soldiers known as the Danes or Vikings. They were notoriously violent, hardened warriors, and these Vikings had held the high ground at Ashdown that day of battle, making the Saxon defeat all the more likely. Their kinsmen had conquered every kingdom on the Anglo-Saxon continent, pillaging, raping, and cruelly plundering the people as they went. Even worse for Alfred, his brother, King Ethelred, had not shown up to the battle, so Alfred stood alone with his men, a much smaller force for the initial conflict. At just 22 years of age and with no military experience under his belt, Alfred nonetheless manfully called his troops to advance on the enemy position and to form the shield wall. Of this legendary moment, Ben Merkel writes, Lacking age, experience, and the crown, Alfred had no room for indecision, bumbling, or cowardice. His demeanor had to be resolute, sharp, and bold. After he had returned to his men, he wasted little time before informing them of the task at hand. He charged them to acquit themselves like men, to be worthy of the king they served, to remember their God and to trust in God's strength and mercy. Then he ordered them to take up their weapons, form their ranks, and be quick about it all. The Wessex army was prepared to face the oncoming crush of the Viking horde. Alfred joined the shield wall, standing shoulder to shoulder with his men. The notion of being led into battle by a man who wasn't willing to personally lead the charge would have been unthinkable to the men of Wessex. As the fighting began, Alfred's inexperience gave way to the ferocity with which he fought. What inspired him, according to biographers, was his conviction of the righteousness of his cause before God. As Merkel says, quote, The intensity of the fight, the thrill of early success, the confidence of divine favor all worked powerfully on Alfred that day, and it awakened in him a savage fury. His men later described him as a wild boar on the battlefield, a bloody beast rampaging through the Viking lines in a ruthless rage, end quote. As the battle went on, the Danes regained precious ground. Many hours into the fight, two walls of shields, with soldiers attempting to stab and flay their opponents in whatever openings they could find with sword and spear, these two shield walls represented hundreds of exhausted men. Blood stained the field with those wounded or dead. The shield wall would hold so long as no opening was created in it. If there was a breach, one side could pour through and destroy the entire line of the enemy. When one man fell, it was imperative that the men behind him immediately filled the gap and held the wall together. The greatest threat to the shield wall? It was actually cowardice. Men fleeing in fear and causing those around them to do the same. Therefore, it was imperative for Alfred as king to be at the front and to be courageous. When it came to filling the gap in the shield wall, Merkel writes, quote, A moment's hesitation, a moment of considering what price might be paid for filling that gap, a hole was left open for a horde of Vikings to pour through the shield wall, ending the battle. And once a man took a position in the front rank, there could be no turning back. He was woven into a wall of shields that utterly depended on his constant struggle to hold the line together. End quote. The Vikings, thinking Alfred's forces to be the entirety of the Wessex army, 
had launched a full push of all troops toward the Saxon position. They were no doubt surprised by the resilience of these men from Wessex, led by the ravenous Alfred. The Danes were even more surprised, however, to find that Ethelred and his men were now marching into the field of battle. Completely unplanned, this providential reinforcement shocked and disheartened the already beleaguered Vikings. The reason for Ethelred's delay? He had apparently tarried long in his prayers. It took several hours for the Saxon men to vanquish the Danes, with thousands lying dead on the field of battle. Alfred's troops chased and killed those who fled from the battle into the night and the following day. Although victorious, Alfred would have years of fighting left to solidify the kingdom of Wessex. He would be driven into exile as a king, where he was forced to wage a guerrilla war for his kingdom. Whereas others fled to Europe to escape Viking torture and death, he remained. He became the only ruler in English history to bear the title, The Great. His lifelong desire to unite Christian England against the Danes would continue through his son Edward, and it would finally be fulfilled by his grandson, Ethelstan, who once and for all drove the Vikings out following the Battle of Brunnenburg. Alfred truly was a great Christian king. As Ben Merkel writes, quote, Sometimes the truest retelling of the story is permeated with hero worship, end quote. There is a statue of King Alfred in Wantage that bears this inscription, a most fitting homage to a true hero, a Christian king, and a great man. It reads, Alfred found learning dead and he restored it, education neglected and he revived it, the laws powerless and he gave them force, the church debased and he raised it, the land ravaged by a fearful enemy from which he delivered it. Alfred's name shall live as long as mankind shall respect the past. What made Alfred such a great king? And how can that serve as inspiration for us today? Why was he so successful and how can we learn from his life and legacy? We'll talk about this and more in this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Well, welcome to this episode of the Hard Man Podcast. Of course, I am your host, Eric Kahn. I am glad that you could join me for this fantastic episode about probably one of my favorite people in history, and that is the very base Giga Chad King Alfred. Now, over the last year or so, I've watched several seasons of The Last Kingdom on Netflix. Some of you may have even watched things like Vikings. There's been a renewed interest, shall we say, in this subject matter. And while it's not all bad, like The Last Kingdom, this retelling of King Alfred's life is shockingly inaccurate, especially if you're a Christian and appreciate who Alfred really was. The Last Kingdom is rewritten with really a soap opera director's flair for modern promiscuity. There's certainly sexual scenes that have to be skipped, and many people will opt out of the show simply for that reason alone. There's also violence, which is probably expected. It was a violent time in human history, but it goes way over the top of what the actual biographies teach us about Alfred. In fact, The Last Kingdom portrays Alfred and his children as fornicating, adultering fools. Alfred himself is portrayed that way, and again, so are his sons and daughters. It's more Game of Thrones than truthful history. 
So it's hard to stomach when you consider that Alfred was a devout Christian. He was a faithful husband who united a nation of people, of blood, and of soil. Well, the show also casts Alfred as somewhat weak and impotent, while this mysterious hero, Uhtred of Bebenburg, played by Alexander Draymond. And by the way, Uhtred is a total BA guy. I get that in the episode. He's the real military genius and hero of the show. There's just one small problem. While there was a historical Uhtred the Bold of Bebenburg, he lived at least 100 years after Alfred's death. In the show, a spat between them reveals why Alfred intentionally left Uhtred out of the story he was supposedly writing. Of course, this is fiction and uh, inaccurate. It sort of paints Alfred, too, as this kind of weak and frail guy, which he certainly had sickness, but he, he was not weak and frail and, by all accounts, was not dependent on uh, a character named Uhtred. Likewise, I will say the show portrays Christianity as somewhat foolish, unthinking, and shallow. The Christianity we find in The Last Kingdom better resembles modern megachurch, evangelifish, churchianity than it does the robust, serious, and world-conquering religion that existed in 8 to 900 Anno Domini. Despite the renewed interest in the medieval times, as again demonstrated by a growing number of shows dedicated to the Anglo-Saxons or to the Viking perspective, these modern renditions are hardly accurate, as I've said. As expected, what is stripped from the actual history of these time periods is robust Christianity that, much for the better, drove out pagan atrocities like those committed by the Vikings. In truth, Alfred was a pious Christian man. He prayed fervently as a youth to remain chaste, even asking for a malady, a physical ailment that would perhaps keep him from sexual temptation. He was devoted to Christ. He went to Rome as a four-year-old, and he spent his early years with his father in the king's court. He was raised from youth to be a ruler of the people. Despite the fact, as the youngest of five brothers, he was extremely unlikely to ever even be king. Nonetheless, his father trained him and educated him for that purpose of rule. Regarding his prayers for physical infirmity, whatever you think about those, God, in fact, answered him several times. Alfred battled what may have been akin to something like Crohn's disease most of his life. In 868, Alfred married Aylesworth of Mercia, and he remained faithful to her as long as they lived. Their daughter, Ethelfled, went on to serve as a beloved ruler in Mercia, fairly unheard of for a patriarchal Anglo-Saxon culture, yet she ruled and was beloved. She was also faithful to her husband and a valuable aid in his rule, and that was Ethelred, despite the fact that the last kingdom portrays her as a fornicating, adultering whore. She also, the real-life Ethelfled, she helped raise Ethelstan, which was Edward's son and Alfred's grandson, and she was pivotal in preparing him for the throne that he would eventually occupy in the legacy work of building Christendom. What I want to do in this episode is look at the lessons of greatness from a great man. As you read biographies like this, I often think, how can we glean from this? How can we apply the lessons of Alfred's life in these principles in such a way that it's beneficial in our time and place? Again, in this episode, I want to bring out several lessons from the life of Alfred and of his rule in hopes that truly you would be inspired, that you would have a heroic example set before you that you could imitate. And the truth is, in our day and age, we are starved for true heroes. 
modernism seems to produce no truly great men. And when great men do arise, as they have in our American history, for example, soon thereafter we are told that we have to tear down their statues. These men were all racists and bigots. And by the way, many of them are white. That's a huge problem in our culture today. And so we must turn to the past, I find, to nourish our souls with the stories of men who valiantly built and defended Christendom. We should not be ashamed of our Christian Western heritage. We should be proud of it, and we should seek to emulate our fathers in the faith. If we are to restore Christendom, we must first restore the memories of the courageous men who laid the groundwork for Western Christian civilization. Likewise, it's interesting to note that in our society, when heroes are elevated, it's usually some statist propagandist lie aimed at deceiving the masses. One only need think of anti-heroes like George Floyd or Matthew Shepard. They become symbols of secular liberalism that were in real life actually nothing like their public portrayal in the mainstream media. Floyd, for example, was cast as a hero of the black community, when in reality he likely died of a fentanyl overdose and had, well, shall we say, less than savory of a rap sheet. Matthew Shepard is also an interesting case. The media and Janet Reno originally claimed that he was dragged to death for being a homosexual, when in point of fact he was actually beaten to death by one of his gay lovers over a drug stash. The true story, in case you're wondering, was revealed by investigative journalist Stephen Jimenez in his book, The Book of Matt. Oddly enough, Jimenez is a homosexual who originally looked into the story because he thought Matt was really a hero for the gay cause. In fact, as he points out in the book, his death had nothing to do with rednecks, Wyoming, or in fact being a hate crime at all. It was just another anti-hero of the leftist cause. So, again, to the point of this episode, what can we learn from the life of Alfred being a great man, and how can it inspire us to say, you know what, I want to be a great man as well? Well, point number one, we can learn, like Alfred, to lead from the front, not the back. As the story to open this episode illustrated, Alfred didn't stand at the back and watch his men fight. This is an incredibly valuable lesson for leadership. In fact, such a leader would not have been followed in that time period, let alone considered to be a leader at all. The men of Wessex simply would not have accepted this. Again, quoting Merkel, he says, quote, Alfred, until his death, regularly took his sword, his shield, and his spear into battle. He stood shoulder to shoulder in the shield wall with his countrymen. In the Anglo-Saxon world, combat was the duty of the ruling class, and the king, his thanes, the noblemen, and other rulers of the English people always filled the ranks of the Wessex shield wall. Thus, it was the landed class, not the peasants or the slaves, who responded to the summons of the feared and were expected to die on the battlefield. In Alfred's day, no man could order another into combat to face the gory death in battle if he wasn't prepared to stand next to him in that same perilous fight. The image of a king ordering his troops to battle while he sat luxuriously pavilioned far from the place of slaughter was the innovation of a much later age and inconceivable to the Anglo-Saxon mind, end quote. By contrast, consider the film All Quiet on the Western Front also has a recent rendition on Netflix. Again, this film is supposedly takes place in the midst of World War I. The movie typifies modern warfare. While poor Germans and Frenchmen are butchered by machine guns needlessly in the trenches of Western Europe at a remarkable pace, Germany's leadership sips coffee and cracks eggs in lavish rail cars. So do the French. Considering the major wars of the 20th century, 
One has to think it's hard to imagine how many of these, if any, would have happened if the nobility and ruling elite had been required to lead their men into battle. Would Stalin have so ruthlessly sent his men, oftentimes unarmed, directly into Nazi machine gun fire if he had been the one leading the charge? Probably not. A similar thing happened during COVID. Think about this. Working class Americans who were deemed essential were sent to work, presumably because their lives were worth less to the ruling class. While mostly white-collar elites locked themselves in their mansions, continued taking their six-figure salaries, or more, while posting Instagram reels and tweets that shared a similar, ironically untrue message. We are all in this together. Like Alfred, we desperately need to learn the lesson that true leaders must be out in front. The true leader will always have what we call skin in the game. We aren't asking our people to do anything we ourselves aren't or haven't done. Instead, we are the ones leading them into the fiercest part of the fight. All leaders should be able to say with Alexander the Great in his great speech, my scars are on the front of my body. They have been at the front lines. They have rallied the troops and they are continuing to encourage their men holding up the shield wall themselves. They have the scars to prove that they have been in the fight. Again, consider what has become of the clergy in America. During COVID, many of these soft pastors continued in their golf club memberships, yet they refused to open their churches. By not resisting government tyranny, they left working class congregants, their own people, their sheep, they left them exposed to tyrannical overreach. They themselves were not exposed, for they took government money to remain closed. These pastors' salaries, many of them, were paid fully by state dollars. And if you question this, just think about the statistics. In the first wave of government bailouts, which is like mid to late 2020, the church in America took at least $10 billion. What about their people? What these pastors have communicated is that they are badly out of touch with working men, the people who fill their pews. Those people were left alone to deal with corporate and state overreach on the front lines. The pastors wanted none of the fight, but they were happy to send their men into the trenches. So pastors, business leaders, politicians, if you're listening to this show, I would charge you, lead from the front. Stand in the gap alongside your people. Hold up the shield wall. Take your scars like men. Get in the fight. Don't just try to look like you're in the fight. Stop waiting for that moment in the fight to step in only because it looks like you'll be successful or somehow the fighting will break in your favor at just the right moment and you'll get all the credit. Be a man of principle and go to war for and with your people. Again, quoting Merkel once more. Alfred taught his noblemen to be cunning but principled, crafty as serpents and innocent as doves. His men had to become deathly shrewd and able to trump the Vikings in guile and deception. But at the same time, they had to sense the deep need for leaders who understood the principles of nobility. They had to despise the nearsighted purchasing of today's peace with tomorrow's freedom and see it for the cowardice that it was. They had to prefer to die a gory death in a hopeless combat rather than live a craven life having betrayed the king and the people of Wessex. The pagan invaders could not have conquered a nation led by noblemen who understood true nobility, end quote. Pastors across this land did what Alfred knew they must not. They were not true noblemen. Instead, they purchased a little peace today for tomorrow's freedom, and they did it at the cost of their people's health, jobs, and souls. In turn, they proved that they were not noble leaders at all, but they were hired men. 
We are a conquered nation largely because our leaders are emphatically not noblemen at heart. May God see fit to raise up a generation of noble leaders who are in the trenches leading their people shoulder to shoulder in the shield wall. Number two, good men require a capacity for violence, which requires martial skills and physical strength. It's easy to take this for granted today, but Alfred and his men fought in a brutal hand-to-hand combat for at least an entire day, sunup to sundown. Then they chased the Vikings through the woods during the night and continued their pursuit into the next day. It's hard to imagine that level of physical exhaustion or exertion for most Americans. Many of our fat pastors, and you know the ones, those who are on Facebook at this very moment comparing careful attention to physical fitness to Hitler and Mussolini, well, these fat pastors wouldn't have lasted two minutes at Ashdown. For such battles, Alfred and his men trained relentlessly. Likewise, later battles proved that if the Saxons did not pursue the Vikings unto total defeat, the Danes would return and win the battle some few hours later. Again, to be those who finished the fight, we need physical prowess. Which is why, men, to be a warrior, you need to buffet your body and make it your slave. I've said this before and I'll say it again. There is no meaningful rebuilding of Christendom without attention paid to physical strength, particularly in men. As a result of that, I would heartily commend to you certain things like barbell training, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And if you're looking for a program, the one that I'm using currently is through Barbell Logic. Again, shameless plug, could not support this enough. In past episodes, we had Matt Reynolds on the show. Matt is a good friend. He's also doing my barbell training. I'll be honest, when I first thought about the idea of having an online trainer, I was like, well, I pretty much know what to do. I lifted some weights in high school. I'm good to go. And uh, I started doing through Barbell Logic training with Matt. And I got to say, it's improved my weightlifting game tremendously. There were so many things that I didn't see, didn't know. It's been incredibly convicting. You think, oh, I'm doing so great. And then you have somebody breaking down your workouts on film, helping you get better, and you have to level up. And that's a good thing as men to have to level up and realize, wow, I'm, I'm not actually doing this as well as I could. I've really had to work on my squat form. But you know what? It reduces injuries. It's able to help me increase the weight that I'm lifting. And so I would definitely recommend that to you. If you're looking to get into barbell training, you can visit barbelllogic.com slash hardmen. We've got a page on there, affiliate program. If you go to barbelllogic.com slash hardmen, we'll provide a link for that also in the show notes. But you can go there and you can sign up for a trainer to help you grow stronger. So I definitely encourage you to do that if you're like many men, like I was saying, yeah, I'm okay at weightlifting. I don't know a ton about it, but I want to get into it. See all these guys online talking about barbell. Why is that so important? Well, because if you're going to be a man with a chest, you actually need to have a real physical chest. Physical strength is imperative for provision and protection. And it's also one of the greatest indicators for better lifespan and health span. So get strong. Check out barbelllogic.com slash hard men. Sign up for a trainer today. And uh, definitely recommend that to you. Now, I also want to make a point about competitive sports at at this juncture versus something like martial training. I mentioned Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Well, in medieval times and during the Roman Empire, little time was spent in non-combat sports. And there's actually a really important reason for this. When you had borders to protect, athletic competitions focused around these martial activities. You read the Aeneid. 
you read the Odyssey, you see these competitions happening, but they're focused around military activity. And so you'd find things like boxing, wrestling, javelin throwing, rowing, running, sometimes in other forms of hand-to-hand combat, lifting heavy objects off the ground, etc. One of the things I would commend to men, it would be incredibly useful if we stopped our fixation with all the money spent on things like competitive travel baseball. Like that's not necessarily a bad thing. But a lot of times, A, if you have a large family, you can't do that together, right? So then it becomes difficult. Even if you have three sons, like I do, you're saying, okay, travel baseball for all three sons. That's not actually possible, particularly if we want to be involved in each other's lives. So perhaps we get involved in something like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. We can actually all do that together. We can be training at the same time, and we are actually gaining a martial skill that will help us defend our people and the perimeter. So just something to think about, food for thought. Having martial skills throughout history has been useful and I think will be useful in our time period as well. Be strong, men. Full send. Number three lesson that we can learn from the life of Alfred. Well, we can see the task at hand. We can take responsibility and refuse to focus on our lack of experience, skill, or bad circumstances. Right? We all have this temptation in our lives. Think about Jeremiah. He once resisted God's call on his life because he said, quote, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. Jeremiah 1.6 Thinking himself too young and inexperienced, he resisted what God was calling him to do. It was, after all, a monumental task that was set before him. God had called Jeremiah to prosecute Israel according to the covenant word that they had violated. Not a very popular or easy job. And we know, in fact, that Jeremiah suffered greatly for the work that God called him to do. And so many young men may be thinking, maybe like Alfred did, that I'm not ready for this cultural moment. I'm not ready for the responsibility that God has called me to embrace. But yet there it is, thrust upon you in the moment. Here's the secret. Whether you're talking about marriage, whether you're talking about taking on a new role at work or starting a small business, the truth is you're never really ready. But God knows what he is doing. He knit us together in the womb and he has called us for such a time as this. In his infinite wisdom, God often sets opportunity and responsibility before us before we feel like we're ready. And what does he do? He equips us. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. And he says, be strong and courageous men. And so many men in our generation simply need to hear this. You can do it. Be strong and courageous. Full send. What we ought to do in the million unique ways each of us are called to do it is shoulder the responsibility. We should trust God and we should act courageously. So, man, I want to ask you this question. What areas might you take responsibility for today? And don't necessarily just think large scale. What is God calling you to do? Well, a good way we can answer this question is first by simply asking the question, what is your duty? And you should start with the basic principles that are laid out in scripture and study them. What is God calling you to do as a man? What is God calling you to do as a husband and a father? What has God gifted you to do? And how can you use that gift vocationally to be courageous and to carve out space in the new Christendom where other people may thrive and be blessed by wealth and your work? Again, go back to the fundamental principles, study them, and pray that God would reveal this to you. Get counsel from other wise, godly men who know you well, preferably men in your gang. Right, men, today may not be and won't be for many of you a time to step up as a leader of, say, large numbers of men. Not everybody is meant to run a social media media platform or to run a media company. 
Many of you are not going to have prominent blogs or podcasts. That's not the point of this. But you can start by leading your wife, your children, and then move out in concentric circles as you prove faithful in those areas. You can do your job with excellence. You can earn respect among your peers. You can wait patiently for a God-given opportunity to do more and continue to pray as you do. Remember Joseph in prison, right? Joseph is in prison. It says the favor of the Lord was upon him. Joseph was a, was a faithful, competent man. And so eventually he gets put in charge of a prison. And then he's faithful there and he eventually ends up in Pharaoh's court. Do you see the point? Be faithful where you're planted. Seek to do your job with principle and excellence and virtue. And God in his time will exalt you to greater work. I would also say this, fathers, prepare your sons like Alfred's father did him, knowing that he was destined for a role as a noble ruler. This week, I've been teaching the children at St. Brandon's in chapel. And I've said to myself, these are going to be future kings and queens in the new Christendom. Are we preparing them for that? Are we calling them that, to that task? Are we saying to our sons, everything I have is yours and this kingdom will be yours. So learn the lesson now. We tend in our culture to think, oh, they're too young. Well, think about Alfred. He was 22 years old leading a nation into battle and he had zero war experience, but his father had trained him to be the kind of man of principle that knew what to do in that moment. Alfred's father had exposed him to learning and Latin and a deep-rooted Christianity and the king's court from a very early age, right? This is take your son to work day before there was ever a take your son to work day. His Youngest son lived on his hip and saw everything and so became wise because of it. Prepare your sons, men. Prepare your sons today to become the future nobility of the new Christendom. Teach them how to be leaders of men. Let them see you doing it on a daily basis. This is one of the distinct goals, by the way, that we have for our children, as I said before, at Refuge Church and St. Brandon's Academy. We are training them to inherit a kingdom as noble sons. Right? And so we're giving them early on, we're giving them responsibilities. We're watching them. We're holding them accountable. But we're giving them opportunities to learn and to grow and to do things that, quite frankly, in our culture, people say, they're much too young for that. What's well, amazing what your sons can learn. We have 10-year-olds in our school who are reading the Aeneid. And you know what? They get a ton out of it, more than you might think. So again, prepare your sons with that talos, that end in mind. They are the future lords of the new nobility, or perhaps consider your circumstances. Unlike Alfred, many of us did not grow up even with fathers who passed on inheritances of faith or productive property. Many of us have churches full of young people only, and we look around and we say, where are the old men to help us? The Proverbs tell us that old men have gray hair and wisdom, and young men have strength. And these two are supposed to be coming together. But what do you see when you look out at our culture? Currently, in a lot of reform caps, Especially online, you see old men taking shots at young men who are bitter and estranged from such fathers. And there's not a coming together of the generations. It's easy for us to look at our circumstances and say, you know, my circumstances are just bad. I don't think that I can succeed in this moment. Many people take the black pill, right? I, I should never get married because the system is rigged against me. Well, that's utter nonsense. And ultimately, it's unbelieving faithlessness. Right? There are real obstacles. But you know what? Many of us are discovering and finding out we must become the fathers for younger men that we never had, for our own sons and the young men in the midst of the church. We are like Alfred. Man, I wish I had more experience. Man, I wish the circumstances were better. 
Well, guess what? They're not. And God has called you to this moment. So we're calling you as men to rise up with steely spines and with courage in your chest and to do the absolute best that you can. God will fill you with his Holy Spirit. Again, think of David. David was young and inexperienced. He's facing Goliath. And the boldness, the spirit-filled audacity to look at Goliath and say, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he may defy the armies of the living God? May we be filled with such courage. Stop looking at how bad your circumstances are. Start looking at how mighty and good and favorable God is towards you. Then be strong and courageous. God is with you. Know your duty. Trust God. Full send. Number four, be a man of unflinching courage. The desperate need of the hour, ultimately, I think, is for courage. This Alfred-like boldness. To use another example, consider someone who I've often pointed to, which is Stonewall Jackson. Both men, oddly enough, were sort of ordinary in their everyday lives and then got on the battlefield and turned into completely different men, almost possessed by a ravenous fighting warrior spirit. Both men, it turns out though, derive their courage, again, which resulted in this ferocity during conflict. They derive their courage from the scriptures. Jackson regularly would recite to himself Romans 8. He would also pray it and he would teach it to his men throughout his life. He is famous for saying, because of the sovereignty of God in which he trusted, quote, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but always be ready, no matter when it may overtake me, end quote. If we would be courageous men, we must first of all be men of the scripture and therefore of deep principle. Once we have established our principles on the bedrock of Jesus' words, it is then an abiding trust in the divine purpose of God for our good that grounds us in this courageous resilience. Like Jackson, we will be the kind of men who attack, who actually charge the enemy when everyone else is retreating in fear. David, though a youth, responded with incredible courage as a nine-foot-tall giant Goliath taunted the armies of Israel. Cloaked in his massive armor, Spitting in the face of Saul and his God, the Philistine had the nation cowering in fear, including Saul. David stood up, he challenged the champion, and he cut off his head. He outsmarted him with cunning. Instead of heavy armor, he chose agility and speed. More than anything, David was victorious because he was clothed in the Holy Spirit. He believed God was with him, and so he acted courageously and decisively. And rather than saying, man, what poor circumstances I've been thrown into, he looked back at his time as a shepherd and he said, actually, God's been preparing me for this moment all my life. I used to grab lions and bears by the beard and kill them with my own hands. And God was with me then and he's going to be with me now. See the change in perspective for a great man and a great leader. Speaking of courage, I would often recall the words of Elizabeth Elliot because there's so many times when you're called to do something, you got to maybe go, have a difficult conversation, you got to make a bold move in a sales meeting, whatever it is, you have to be a bold man. But it was Elizabeth Elliot who said, and it's so true, she said, sometimes the fear does not subside and we must do it afraid. And what she meant, I think, is that sometimes our knees still shake, we're still trembling, but we have to go to the stage, we're into battle anyway. We pray for the strength to speak, fight, and stand, and when then we do our best. One wonders if that wasn't part of Alfred's story at Ashdown. Either way, this is what great men do. When it comes to principles, we must so fix our minds on them. We must meditate on them. 
We must study them, write them down, relish them, so that the Spirit of God emblazons them upon our hearts and wills. As we read and study and pray, God will give us courage to act according to that which His Spirit writes upon our hearts. Likewise, we should study the examples of great men like David, read biographies of men like Stonewall Jackson or Alfred. By the way, the book I've been referencing in this show, I would commend to you, that was by Benjamin Merkel, and it's titled The White Horse King. You can also read Asser's, Asser was a monk. You can read his stories of Alfred. You can get a little bit of the stories of Alfred as well in Winston Churchill's book on the the English-speaking peoples. We need biography like Alfred to gain soul-stirring inspiration for our moments of glory. These men, each in their own way, were the embodiment of courage on fire. Men consumed by divine principles, yet somehow ordinary men who rose above their situation and found a way to be great. We need this principled sense that God has called us for important work according to a mighty vision. We need to develop that and then pursue it with all our soul. Number five, we need to refuse to give in to enemies, however powerful. Early in his rule, Alfred made a fundamental mistake. He did what Anglo-Saxon kings before him did, and by the way, they were all conquered, and that is he paid the Danegeld. That is to say, the Danegeld was a bribe paid to the Danish, and in Alfred's case, specifically Guthrum, to leave the kingdom of Wessex alone, and so that's what Alfred did. He paid the bribe, and the Danes left for a time. The only problem with paying the Danegeld is that those who paid the Danegeld signaled to the Vikings that they were weak. They assured that the Danes would return in short time to collect more money. The other problem was that the bribe heavily burdened the people who ultimately had to pay the tax. Interestingly enough, Rudyard Kipling once wrote in his poem titled Danegeld, It is always a temptation to an armed and agile nation to call upon a neighbor and to say, We invaded you last night. We are quite prepared to fight unless you pay us cash to go away. And that is called asking for Danegeld. And the people who ask it explain that you've only to pay him the Danegeld and then you'll get rid of the Dane. It is always a temptation for a rich and lazy nation to puff and look important and to say, though we know we should defeat you, we have not the time to meet you. We will therefore pay you cash to go away. And that is called paying the Danegeld. But we proved it again and again that if you once have paid him the Danegeld, you never get rid of the Dane. It is wrong to put temptation in the path of any nation for fear they should succumb and go astray. So when you are requested to pay up or be molested, you will find it better policy to say, we never pay anyone, Danegeld, no matter how trifling the cost. For the end of that game is oppression and shame, and the nation that pays it is lost. What's the point of not paying the Danegeld and of Kipling's poem? Well, I think it's this. Giving in to bullies always ensures that they return. You're never free of them until you stand up and fight them. Appeasement is not a winning strategy. It's a strategy, ultimately, for enslavement. Sure, it might buy you a temporary peace, but it will never last. Again, COVID is a good example of this. The government and medical agencies won't stop forcing mandates until they were met with resistance. Another would be the woke mob. It consumes everyone in its path. And many men have been tempted, well, if I just play along with some of this political correctness, if we just form an ESG board for our company, if we just have a diversity, equity, and inclusion board, then you know how the woke mob goes away? It's not by paying the Danegeld. The woke mob goes away when men like Jordan Peterson actually confront it, face it, and put it in its place. That's the only way it goes away. The more you give in to bullies, 
the more ground the enemy will take. Again, this is an important lesson for Christians. You cannot win by appeasing the left. You cannot win by playing their game. Number six, and finally, we need a glorious world-swallowing vision for greatness. Ultimately, great men are great men because they have a great vision. Years ago, I read Dave Harvey's book, Rescuing Ambition, which, looking back, was really a very pietistic approach to personal ambition. The tone and flavor of the book went something like this. If you have ambitions, you're probably doing it out of pride and vainglory, and that's bad. You should probably obsess over your motives in that case, and really the only noble things are probably something like evangelism or overseas missions. Well, needless to say, it didn't really inspire me to take bold action for the kingdom. If anything, it turned me into a navel gazer for a time, and I was, like most men in this state of pietism, impotent, lazy, not really doing anything, really out of a seemingly righteous, but quite unrighteous, fear that somehow I was being selfish. So I would definitely discourage this book and this view. Instead, I would encourage the view that we've really tried to take with the King's Hall. In that podcast, our tagline is to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world. The point is that we're focused on God's plan for total dominion, following certain cunning paths we can take to be a part of that work. As a result of that vision, we started New Christendom Press, along with several podcasts that we've started prior along the way to fuel the next Reformation, right? The Hard Men Podcast, you're listening to that now. The King's Hall Podcast, Bright Hearth with Brian and Alexi Sauvet, right? We've got a bunch more plans in the works. Among other things, our hope is that this boldness to speak a message that is desperately needed but wildly hated by the culture at large and by many Christians will encourage other men and we will encourage people like you to start businesses, to find a gang of godly men to lock arms with, to go about the work of reformation within your own lives and within your churches. We want to be bold so that it will inspire other men, men like you, to be bold as well. Yes, we pray that what we do is for the glory of God, and we know that ultimately, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor in vain, that includes us. We take correction from each other constantly, but we're not navel-gazing or obsessing about every little ounce of motive. Quite frankly, we're too busy building, doing, and fighting. And I think that's a healthier way to go about the matter. When moments like Alfred at Ashdown arise, there's no time for pietistic introspection. You simply need to know your duty, do your best, be courageous, full send. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. Again, deeply appreciate all the support for the show, particularly those who are supporting on Patreon, really could not produce this content without you guys. So I just want to give you a shout out and say thank you. Thank you very, very much. By the way, as I mentioned in the show, if you haven't checked out some of our other network podcasts, which are part of New Kristen Press, a brand new publishing company that we have started, myself, Dan Burkholder, and Brian Sauvet, you can check that out at newchristendompress.com. Check us out on Twitter and on Facebook, Instagram as well. Follow along especially going to find more content on Twitter at this point in the game. You can support any one of those podcasts on Patreon. It goes a long way to supporting our work. We have a lot of huge plans and uh, we're excited to continue to roll those out coming into the new year. Lots of new content, books. Uh, did somebody say app? They might've said app. Hmm. That's interesting. Keep that feather in your cap. 
And uh, we're, again, very, very excited about this. If you're not yet a Patreon subscriber, definitely would encourage you to support the show on Patreon. Of course, it takes a lot of money, time, energy, and effort to produce this content. And uh, we want to continue doing that. So please support this great work that we are doing. Be a part of the Nehemiah Project. (laughs) That's not what this is called. But uh, in the spirit of Nehemiah, we are rebuilding the walls of Christendom. And we want to see new cathedrals erected. So please consider being a supporter for as little as $5 a month. Again, quick shout out. uh, Really loving the barbell training from Barbell Logic. Christian brother in Christ, uh, Matt Reynolds, is my trainer. Feel pretty pretty spoiled to be able to say that. Uh, He's done training for Brett McKay, still does at the Art of Manliness. And uh, Brett's over 600 pounds on his deadlift. So I'm going to consider that if Matt can't get me to 600 pounds by next week, it's a failure. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but that would be pretty, pretty amazing. Pretty Chad King energy to get to uh, anywhere close to 600 pounds on the deadlift. Just started that program. You can check it out as well. Barbelllogic.com slash hard men. Check out the link in the show notes. You can join today. And that also helps support this show and supports the work that Matt is doing. Heck, it's going to help you become stronger, increase life and health span. Strong men are harder to kill. Let's face facts. So barbell training is a great way to be serious about buffeting your body. Again, thanks for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.